So I will say it again. Namaste and good evening to all of you. I'm glad to be here with you tonight and with those which will watch this online. It's a satsang which I'm doing after a long time. And um, since this satsang is the first which comes after the Shakti festival, with our uh, meditations and worship over the manifestations of the goddess, a typical tantric event, I received a question, a request from one of the students to explain a little bit more what is the attitude, like what are all these divine forms. Even today I'm speaking and the setting is still from the Shakti festival. I'm surrounded by statues of Shiva, but also by two Shaktis, by two goddesses. And in the hall we see some other Shakti forms. And um, this aspect, which is specific to Tantric Yoga, some, most of you who are already students of the school, you have absorbed it more or less easily, and it is with you, and you take it for granted. And uh, I, I always remember one simple fact. When I was young, I read things about parapsychology, about the paranormal. I started understanding things about resonance, about the subtle energies of nature. At some point, I even started understanding that there are energies which are yet unknown to science, and some of these energies were having such a different frequency of vibration that they were considered to be on other planes of the universe, that there was a concept of parallel universes, of parallel planes of the universe. And um, I could live with that because it was quite obvious that the world of the paranormal is amazing and there was no way to explain scientific evidence of telepathy, of anti-gravitation, of psychokinesis, of pyrokinesis, and other paranormal facts from parapsychology, which were certified to exist by very solid experiments, but which had absolutely no explanation in the paradigm of the modern science of today. And the only explanation was that there existed other energies, other planes, which it was not shameful to acknowledge that we didn't know them and we still don't know much about them. And that's why, for me, the transition was gradual I understood it through the understanding of science, alternative science, parapsychology, and other extended science, very open-minded scientists, which made it all possible. And even when I got to the point of understanding that as we go up the pyramid of the universe, 
like when you would be in the astral world or an entity that would be in the astral world would see much more, would understand much more, would be in many more places. But when you would go at the level of the causal world, the level of consciousness, the understanding, the control over the space and time, the understanding of what human life is, so small in the middle of all these gigantic referentials. So I started understanding slowly, slowly that there were levels of consciousness which I could reach, levels of consciousness where one could be, which were way higher. It was easy to understand that a Shankara or a Milarepa that a Brahma Krishna or a Jesus, that a Buddha or a Rumi, they were on an entirely different level of consciousness and that those levels of consciousness were mansions in the universe, they were planes in the universe. And eventually, although I didn't start from that, definitely when I was 16 years old and I first encountered references to parapsychology, I didn't have a clue about that and I didn't have any connection about that. I understood that all these planes of energy, all these levels of energy could be unified in one energy. That there is a level which commonly in Agama Yoga here we call plane seven, the seventh plane of the universe corresponding to the highest chakra which corresponds a little bit, a little bit to what Albert Einstein was trying to call the unified field of energy. Today, when I think about the theories of Albert Einstein about the fact that there would exist a unified energy, I think he didn't see the full picture. I still think that what Albert Einstein conceived as a unified field of energy would be what the yogis call Akasha Tattva, the energy unified at the level of Vishuddha, and even Albert Einstein didn't have a concept of what's happening higher up, especially at the level of the crown, especially at the level of Sahasrara. And I came to understand that at least theoretically it was possible. And therefore... I was ready when my yoga teachers taught me about the existence of the universal mind, of a cosmic mind, of a macrocosmic mind. And when they talked about a consciousness, a Buddha nature, a supreme consciousness, which is even above the mind, I was ready to admit that there is an energy underlying that that indeed in this reality there can exist a synthesis, there can exist a higher and a higher and a higher level. So I was ready when I read Patanjali and I heard about how yoga was talking about life and evolution and the universe, I was ready to accept that somewhere, in spite of what everybody was believing, that somewhere in reality 
there exists a cosmic consciousness which is here and now. I did not learn as advanced things in those days as Kashmiri Shaivism to understand that that's the consciousness which exists in me as well, that it's a function. But I understood that somehow there exists a universal energy, there exists an omnipresent universal reality. It's plausible, it's not absurd. I understood that there exists a universal consciousness. I understood that we don't understand what consciousness even is, because consciousness is above the mind. It's something which is beyond mind itself. And thus it was easy for me to even jump at the concept of God or Absolute, the universal consciousness, Brahman, and to understand that the yogis did have a grasp, they seemed practically to have a grasp of this ultimate attainment. Even as I did that, as I studied this yoga, maybe for one year, one year and a half, I did not hear pretty much anything about Kali, about Tara, about Ganesha, about, about deities, about what we call deities. And again, today I'm talking to you in a satsang and I'm surrounded by murtis, by images of these deities. And um, I have a bitter suspicion. I have the bitter suspicion that if my yoga teachers would have introduced me into a yoga school where they would have taught me after two months of being in the school, they came and workshop on Matangi and I would have had the option to go into a course where to learn how to connect with a tantric goddess called Matangi. I have the suspicion that the way I was when I was 19 or 20 years old, it would have been very difficult for me. I don't know if I wouldn't have gotten frightened by it, frightened by the idea that I'm stepping in some bizarre Hindu cult, and suddenly after a month of yoga in which I'm spoken about some great metaphysical ideals, suddenly I'm stepping in a world of worshipping deities which don't belong to my ancestors, at least not visibly, something which is not part of my culture, something which I haven't learned about in school, and something which is a bit odd, to say the least. That's why I really don't know how my students dare to come to me and to Agama in these days, because this yoga school, in the last 10 years, 20 years and more, it has become very different. And it has become very different because a large number of advanced students and teachers of the school, they are very used to these Hindu symbols and realities. Buddhist symbols, if you want, it's not, I don't have anything with or against Hinduism from this standpoint. And they spoke freely about it. 
and some people who felt open-minded and who felt that they had resonance, they were ready to give it a try. It was easy for them, maybe, to give it a try. Honestly, I'm telling you again. When I was 20 years old, I don't know if I would have given a try to such things. Also because I came from an atheistic, Marxistic, communist society, where any idea of mysticism and such things were taboo, and my family was the same and everything was the same, or simply because the fact that I had an education in physics and engineering, and astrologically I was and still am a Virgo, endowed with a healthy amount of skepticism and need for proofs, need to see certain things, need to touch certain things to really accept their existence. And until today, some of you who know me, you know that I'm not easily taking a very big amount of bullshit and that I am one of the most skeptical yogis that you know. In the world of yoga, we are confronted with a lot of paranormal and extraordinary things. And I am one of the people who has most difficulties in accepting them, simply because if there is just talk and no meat to that talk, no facts, I feel very well that it could be baloney, that it could be a stupid story, that it could be unreal. That's why I resonated very much when somebody addressed me this question around the Shakti festival. Perhaps it was one of the souls, one of the students, one of the people gravitating around this school who simply felt the same qualms which I would have felt when I was 20 years old about jumping directly into a tantric tradition of which this Mahavidya part is the most visible part of it but there are so many other invisible stories here like people who study the tantric yantras and mantras or people who are, uh, I don't know, wanting to absorb the energy of Ganesha, which is not a female deity and not part of the Dasha Mahavidya system. Like once you have extended in this field, a lot can be extended. If you would go into the Tibetan deity yoga, there you would be encountering 20, 30 deities, one more bizarre than the other, one more exotic than the other, one more fierce than the other, one more hard to sustain, hard to believe into than the other, and things. And of course, there are people who go to the Tibetan community and they claim that they practice Tibetan Buddhism and they are doing all sorts of pujas or worships. And um, honestly, I cannot say what would have happened if when I was 20 years old I would have been offered directly this path. Like this, it took perhaps two years, three years of practicing yoga, feeling, 
the energies, feeling the chakras, starting having spiritual openings and experiences, reading from the experience of great masters like Ramakrishna. And then slowly, slowly I started realizing that between me and God, there was a huge ladder, there was a huge staircase of planes of existence, forms of intelligence, levels of consciousness. And slowly, slowly, I got used to it. Even for several years, these things were going slowly for me. That's why, with this conference, I want to answer to those souls which may be gravitating around Agama, Tantric Yoga, and who are sometimes a bit scared or put off because these aspects, they give this impression of being a cult. Agama has been several times been accused that it's a sort of a brainwashing cult of some sort, that we are a cult. I honestly do not see myself as a cult leader. I honestly do not see Agama as a cult. I do not want to teach to the world a cult. I have absolutely nothing against the world, the word religion. I think it's a brilliant word, this re-ligo. I think it's completely brilliant because it tells us that man once upon a time was connected with the divine, with the divine consciousness, and then man lost it, and now man is trying to reconnect, because that's what religo means, to reconnect with what you have. I, that is okay. If you would tell me that yoga is a religion, I would say you come from pure consciousness, your Atman is of the nature of pure consciousness, you were debased at the level of animality, instincts, ego, and from this animalistic, instinctual, egoistic nature, you are trying to build up again to your Atman to find out who you really are. Therefore, yoga is a sort of religo, only that as you learn in our metaphysical workshop, for those of you who attended it or will attend it at least once in your lives. Yoga is not a religion based so much on cult and Sunday masses or similar things. In yoga, you stand on your head. You meditate with your breath. You visualize. You work on the chakras. You rise your kundalini. If yoga is a religion strictly metaphysically speaking, then yoga is the ultimate experimental religion in which you just do things with your mind and with your body and with your energy and you get to taste the results, you get to taste the effects of all this. So I don't have a problem with the word religion to compare yoga and agama in particular to religion. But when people feel that it's like a cult, the idea of a cult not only is that people are brainwashed and totally irrational, but it's also the idea that people believe in things which don't exist, 
in things which could never exist, in things which are absurd, sick, harmful, idiotic, and so on and so forth. So, from this standpoint, I understand the qualms of the people who today, perhaps not through my direct intention, when they come to take contact with yoga, they come to take contact with yoga in a different way than I did. I don't know how you all who are listening to me, either live or online at this time, how you all came to be together with me in this thing. Because it's one thing for me to teach you the philosophy of morality and ethics, like Santosha on the board there, how to cultivate contentment, why it is important, living in the present, meditating on the ephemerality of transiency of life and uh, meditating on death and all that. That's one philosophical thing which we can speak very beautifully about. And that's a huge difference between that and we together making a puja for Matangi or for whoever it is and taking a tapasya that every day you will use the mantra of Matangi this many times and you putting hopes into it and you asking things for your life and hoping in self-transformation and hoping in improvement by a matter of worship, by acts of worship, which I myself, I haven't done for years and years when I came in touch with yoga. My spiritual life definitely did not start with worship of any degree, of anything or anybody. And thus, I'm telling you all these things because sometimes I wonder how much more gifted you are than I was when I was young, how, how narrow-minded, how closed I was, and how difficult it was to open the doors of my perception. Or maybe that some of you are believing these things out of mimesis and out of a sort of svadistanistic mimetic thing, and actually it's not understood properly. It's not fundamental, it's just a copycat, it's just a monkeying, but without depth. Like, again I'm saying, I wouldn't have had probably this openness, it would have been very difficult I would have had, if I studied the worship of Kali with Ramakrishna, I would have asked Ramakrishna to materialize Kali before my eyes and that she should touch me or something, so I would believe that such a thing really exists. When I definitely, when I was 19 or 20 years old, I would have not taken the existence of Kali for a fact. Of course, there are metaphysical and intelligent explanations which show what Kali truly is. If somebody would have told me, wait a second, forget about a black woman smeared in blood and having ferocious fangs in her mouth. We are talking about time. Good old time. That I could have accepted 
that exactly as Albert Einstein meditated and visualized space and time for 10 years or more every day, and then he got to a vision of space and time which led him to the theory of relativity, I could accept that meditating on time, on space, on quant quantum mechanics, on quantic realities, quanta and other things there, that meditating on the fact that some quantum experiments unfold differently when they are witnessed and when they are not witnessed by a person, by a human being, and other, many, many, the undetermination principle of Heisenberg and so many other things which exist in science, not to mention about the modern theories with multidimensional universes, holographic reality, string theories, and others, I would have been able to say that meditating on time can produce miraculous effects and altered states of consciousness. And if my teacher would have told me so, that it is a way of creating higher levels of consciousness. That I could have accepted a sort of a, at least a semi-scientific theory about these things would have at least satisfied some of this skepticism or caution which I may have had in those days about such things. That's why when I got asked this question, when somebody sent this question, like, could you explain a little bit about all these Hindu deities that we encounter so much? I uh, went back to ground zero, to the milestone of ground zero, and tried to see what people see in Agama, in yoga, in a tradition. You know, when they look abruptly, they come to yoga for two days and then they join us in a Shakti festival where, I'm sorry to be French in my language, but they basically, we worship a big pussy, a big pink pussy in the middle of the room, you know. It's like, for God's sake, you know, it's like, talk about cultism, you know, it's like, it's not only cultish, it's also a bit crazy and maybe even disgusting for some people. You know, it's like, what the heck is happening? And uh, this was the reason for which I uh, thought that I would try once more. I have tried in various places. And one of the best places where you find such explanations in Agama is when you do our course of introduction to the Mahavidya. This Mahavidya intro is a course where there is a gigantic lecture and more facts and more practical things precisely about this story with the goddesses of Tantra, the Tantric tradition and the personification of this. But I try to remember when was the first time in my youth that I had heard about these things. When was the first example? Because I read Swami Shivananda. I read the commentaries or different things to the Yoga Sutra. I read perhaps 
paragraphs from the Geranda Samhita or from the Hatha Yoga Pradipika. And I had not found things about the Tantric Yoga, the worship of deities. Somehow, miraculously, my path for a year or two went beyond, went among these things. And I found or I saw what I wanted to see. I found the facts which were justifying my path, which were explaining my path. And I remember that at some point I read a description of the life of Ramakrishna, which was um, 50% of it at least, more than that, was a translation from a very good French magazine of 50 years ago called Planet, the Planet magazine, written by very intelligent people, Jacques Bergier, Louis Powells, and others, very, some of them very journalistic, some of them very scientific. Louis Powells was a physicist, Jacques Bergier was a journalist and a book author. And um, there, there, was, there were a few authors. They, it was not written by Bergier and Powells, who otherwise wrote some very spectacular books. And there was an analysis of the life of Ramakrishna. I loved that life of Ramakrishna. I somehow causally being related to the great Ramakrishna in the previous lives since my own guru in India gave me the name of Vivekananda, the same name as the main disciple of Ramakrishna. And therefore, for me, Ramakrishna has always been a landmark in yoga and in my understanding of spirituality. And uh, I liked that biography, that excerpt. It was excerpts from this, not complete translation. It was like the translation of the most beautiful paragraphs from this Planet magazine. That I liked it so much that I even tr translated it back in English. And I used it in a satsang. If you look in my collection of satsangs out there online, you will find one about the life of Ramakrishna about who Ramakrishna was. And at least three quarters of that satsang is based on the Planet magazine and other historical information which exists about Ramakrishna. And there, I was introduced by an author, I don't know if it was uh, Suzanne Lemaitre or somebody else, a French author, who was in the spirit of Powell's and Berger trying to be as rational as possible, as scientific as possible, as journalistic as possible, because you have to interface with the Western world and explain to them something very mystical coming from the countryside of Bengal in India, in West India, in the Western part of India, because it could have another meaning. And um, there... I was informed, like all the readers, about the fact that Ramakrishna worshipped Kali. And Kali is nothing but, it's actually one of the most scary and eccentric Hindu goddesses. And uh, when this author went to explain, like, why did Ramakrishna do that? Because it was simple to say, oh, Ramakrishna was born in Bengal. The only spiritual thing that they knew to do in that place was to worship this black goddess, some sort of Hindu religious worship 
of a goddess. I, I think I would have been turned off by the personality of Ramakrishna. Like this was a bizarre guy from some corner of India who was worshipping a bloody black goddess. But this author was very smart. This author, he or she, I don't remember, they spent half of a page to try to explain, first of all, what was this story with deities in a very simplified way for the common reader. And it was said, you know, that Ramakrishna had to understand that these so-called deities, they represent fundamental energies of the universe, and because of this they correspond to fundamental energies, and therefore resonances, frequencies, and levels of consciousness, and that therefore they exist, although not necessary in the way in which you expected. Approximately at the same time when I was learning these things, I was reading a bit of a fantastic novel, a suppressed spiritual novel in communist Romania, which was basically a novel of Svadistanistic fantasy, where a woman of great sensitivity was trying to present some spiritual issues, but in a very veiled way, more like a science fiction, more like science fiction and fantasy, because it was forbidden to publish spiritual, direct spiritual peop, uh, subjects in a, in a communist society. So this woman at some point in that book, which has the same, exactly this title which you'll hear now, is telling the story of two medieval monks, I guess they were Latin monks, Catholic monks, and uh, they took a vow with each other that the first of them who dies will make all the possible efforts to come in a dream soon after to the other one who is still alive and to tell him, to describe to him even briefly how is the other world, how is the world beyond death. And indeed, at some point one of them passed away. And not a couple of days passed and the other one dreamt him. He came in a dream to the other Okay, for me, dreams at that time didn't mean much. There was a theory about the yoga of the dreams, but I had not practiced it, and I didn't know. And therefore, dreams were interpreted materialistically as just an activity of the brain during your sleep. And the other monk came to this guy in a dream. He was shining in light, and he just told him two words, which are the title of the book itself. Just two words in Latin because that was the religious language which they were speaking. Those two words were totaliter aliter, which means totally different. Aliter means otherwise. Like, basically, the idea is not the way you expect it will be. Not the way it has been written in the books. Like, the descriptions can't even come close to what it is, inexpressible, and that's why he simply came and told him, warned him by saying, totaliter aliter. Exactly in the same way, this author, 
explain that, okay, we can describe space and time and other things, like day it is. And it is true, and it is totaliter aliter at the same time. It's not the way you think with a brain. It's another way. It has to be meditation. It has to be an altered state of spirit to understand those things. And then, after I read about Ramakrishna and I understood that these gods and goddesses were supposed to mean principles of the universe, forces, energies, laws of the universe, planes of the universe, aspects of the universal existence, but that to illiterate, uneducated people, they could not be explained as the theory of relativity or as quantum mechanics, because then almost nobody will understand what it is, then mysteriously, probably through the grace of Ramakrishna, through the grace of my guru in those days, my soul, my mind, my spirit, although skeptical and not being able to take nonsense, somehow felt a resonance of truth, somehow felt a resonance of reality in these things, And slowly, slowly, I started opening towards these realities. Later in time, the teacher of that time, when I was at that time, started giving teachings about the ten Mahavidyas. And then I was kind of prepared, because I already had had some meaningful spiritual experiences, I had been having lucid dreams and experiences in the astral mental planes. I could feel chakras. I could feel energy. I had even some experiences of interaction with what we could generically call entities or spirits. Some of them even almost accidentally I remember I was maybe one and a half year old in yoga when I went and participated in a religious ceremony in a mass on January 1st in a monastery on the outskirts of Bucharest, a little bit outside Bucharest. And there I was not aware, but the priest who was serving there, he was a great exorcist, one of the two, three living exorcists who lived in that country at that time. And on the 1st of January, he always performed a public exorcism. And I found myself into an exorcism without knowing what it was. And a person in the crowd fell down on the earth and started manifesting demonic symptoms and was being exorcised. And... uh, it, it, had, it, it very quickly became one of the most horrible experiences which I had at that time because I could feel the energy of it. Unlike the people around me, I had been trained for one year and a half in yoga. I could feel my energy and my chakras, maybe not as well as today, but some. 
and uh, being in the presence of a demonic exorcism, Somebody should have warned me, but you know, so that's why it's not that always I tried to. Sometimes simply my karma took me in places and circumstances where I had different such experiences. And uh, all those experiences slowly, slowly build up. And therefore, when I started, when I tried my first meditation with Kali, I did not know the yantra of Kali. I did not know the mantra of Kali, neither the long or the short. I had seen a couple of pictures of Kali in some art albums, but I did not have a picture or a statue of Kali. So everything was devotion in my heart, just calling upon Kali, because I knew that Ramakrishna did it, and if it worked for him, then it was bound to work for me, although I was at an inferior level of practice, but still. So, in this way, I'm trying to explain to you who are here and to the world at large, that if you have any limitations or qualms of being thrown in the pond, in the deep water and you are told swim, or else you'll drown, um, you can also take it more easy. I, myself, have been given a more gradual path into this part of the tantric tradition, and it was my luck that I had a keen mind, and I was eager to learn, and I was open-minded, and at the same time, I could understand some physics, some natural science, and I could make connections in my mind, understanding that, I'm sure, in a very bizarre environment, you can actually personify time as a black woman smeared with blood and with a a necklace of skulls at her neck, and that would have a visual, symbolic impact on your subconscious mind and talk directly to some hyperbolic, symbolic, and um, archetypal aspects in your subconscious mind, in your causal body, and therefore that it would be a path to take you to the target as precisely as meditating on time in a, in a scientific paradigm. And perhaps, why not, faster. I don't know how many scientists would meditate on time for 12 years and they will get to states of Savikalpa Samadhi like Ramakrishna did. Ramakrishna, by meditating and worshipping Kali for 12 years, he reached to the last level of Savikalpa Samadhi. From there, there was just one step for him to go to Nirvikalpa Samadhi. I don't know how many scientists meditated on time for 12 years, and then they got to advanced stages of Savikalpa Samadhi. Therefore, either Ramakrishna was particularly fanatic and particularly intense, or his method might prove itself to be even better 
than some scientific jnana, some scientific forms of meditation. But it is my purpose in doing this satsang tonight to tell to people that if they want to do yoga more like a jnana, because a lot of it for us is going into this bhakti, into this tantra bhakti, devotionalism and worship, um, that's not the way I started. For me, my tantric yoga was more a path of jnana in the first two, three years until this aspect of bhakti became comfortable to me and I understood that they are like the two sides of one coin. I constantly see in my life people who come to the teachings of Tantra and sometimes they feel awkward about it simply because they are rational minds, minds of people who are scientifically oriented and for them this shock of crossing into a devotional mentality is difficult because there is no interface. That's why I want to tell to everybody who is coming to a Shakti festival and then says, what the heck, I thought yoga was something else. And indeed, classical yoga and Hatha yoga and Kundalini and Laya Yoga, and even most aspects from Raja Yoga, they are something else. But this Tantric tradition is very colorful, very beautiful, very humane, very warm, very friendly, and therefore many of the students, they fall in love with it and they want to do it, and for them it's a great thing to do, And they discover that it gives results and thus it becomes easy. But while I want to talk to you a little bit about the spirit world, what was Ramakrishna doing? What is all this invisible world which stretches from here to the divine level? At the same time, no, I want to give to people at least the explanation of the fact that there are other ways of approaching. There are other ways of climbing on this ladder to heaven. And at least in the beginning, you might find it comfortable that you are connecting with space, with time, with energies, with frequencies, and you understand the world in this wonderful way, which is still part of the tantric tradition. I remember when my first spiritual teacher was trying to explain to me and my best friend from those days how these things were happening, We were bombarding him with questions about 
telepathy, levitation, hypnosis, clairvoyance, mostly things which we knew from parapsychology. That means mostly things about altered states of consciousness and cities. And he was constantly trying to explain to us that it is something which can be understood and practiced only when you understand the different planes of the universe. And I remember after having had four or five conversations with this old teacher, very, very old teacher and very knowledgeable, eventually he simply said, look, for myself, I have made this thing systematic and he took out a piece of paper which was almost falling apart and which was like, I think it was an A3 piece of paper, like large, and it was written with small writing. Every time when he got to know something, he took and he wrote a note there on that diagram where he basically had made a diagram of the seven planes of the universe. What is the physical plane? What is the etherical plane? What is the astral plane? And so on and so forth until the divine place. He tried to gather all the names. He found out that in the uh, Buddhist tradition, the causal plane was not called causal plane. It was called the nirvanic plane. Because already there, being Ananda Maya Kosha, the states of Ananda start. And because the states of Ananda start, it's already there are states of Samadhi and therefore they can be considered stages of Nirvana. And that's why the Buddhist masters had called it the Nirvanic world or the Nirvanic plane. And that above it, there was the Maha Nirvanic plane, which today in yoga we call Buddhi or whatever. And that above that, the divine plane was called the Paramaha Nirvanic plane, because they did not want to use a Hindu name. I'm just giving you bits and pieces in which I'm telling you that that was the first or one of the first massive eye-openers to understand that life and consciousness in this universe exists on so many planes and to understand why we human beings are so blind and so skeptical, and we see so little, because although we have an astral body, we don't really use our astral body much, or in a very passive and blind way, because everybody has emotions, most people cannot even control their emotions, and the way the emotions come to us, is that the emotions make us the prisoner of our emotions, and they turn us into slaves and into weaklings. And therefore, what's the use that I have an astral body if I cannot see the astral universe and be in the astral universe and go wherever I want and explore and control the energies of it and derive something practical from that. So... My first eye-opener was, or at least one of the first, was definitely this, that existence is layered on those many layers of the universe, and that on those layers of the universe, there exists life. 
and that life is not physical life. And that was, it took a leap of faith and a leap of understanding to understand that there can be life without a physical body. That without my body, there is a life. Which, of course, immediately takes us to the conclusion that even I myself, when I will stop having a physical body like everybody else does, I still will have a life and I still will have a consciousness which is the beginning of the understanding of evolution, reincarnation and a hundred other things which are included in that concept. So, again, I cannot say that when I was 17 years old or when I was 19 years old or something, I believed these things. But I believed that they were possible and I believed that somebody thought they were so and had written it on paper. And therefore I knew that it could have been up to me to see it, to feel it, to experience it or to demonstrate that it was not so. To demonstrate that it was a superstition and that it was not the truth, that it was not right. Therefore, I had all these things in my mind, at least with the title, that there was a working hypothesis. There was a scientific hypothesis. Mystical people, metaphysicians, yogis, seers, and others, they had seen the universe and the reality as a multi-layered structure and in that multi-layered structure there was life there was life in the physical world there was life in the etheric world and life in the etheric world didn't sound fun at all it didn't sound enticing life in the etheric world being the life of ghosts and the life of energy leeches bloodsuckers who suck your energy and uh, incubi and succubi and God knows what other things, uh, entities which are supposed, were supposed in Christian medieval times to suck one's sexual energy and a thousand other things. The etheric world didn't seem anything enticing and I was also aware that with the etheric world you interact partly and only out of ignorance. Exactly as with viruses. It's not compulsory to interact with viruses. If in the last two years or three years you lived alone on a mountain in the Himalaya and you have never seen one single human being for the last two years, how would you have gotten in contact with COVID or any other of these viruses which are supposed to circulate through the world? No. Exactly as you can avoid physical contact with viruses or other things, exactly in the same way it is possible to avoid etheric contact with different forms of life if you are not doing certain things, if you are not going into certain places. And therefore, I, why am I telling you this? Because when we get to the level of the cosmic powers, like Kali, how would you stay out of contact with Kali? 
It's not possible because Kali is omnipresent and has the size of the universe. There is no place in this universe where the time is not present under one form or another. And therefore, you cannot stay away from us. The higher you go, the more ethereal the things become. And there you realize that you are in a world of mingling, of merging, of blending, that we can never be separate. But with physical things, you don't need to blend. With etheric things, it's a bit more difficult to not blend, but it's still possible. When it comes to astral things, their life is much more free, and any astral entity can come and visit you and whatever. So you would isolate yourself from astral life only if you'd build astral protection if you would be like some Tibetan lamas who walled themselves into a room and lived in states of high clairvoyance and doing dark room retreats for years and years and so on, and then they were not isolated, they were taking contact with Shambhala, they were taking contact with the Dhyani Buddhas and others, but at least you can say that they were not nagged by astral contacts. We, on the planet Earth living in contact with humanity, we have lots of astral contacts. Members of our family, lovers, friends, people with whom we interacted emotionally. Sometimes we just connect with the collective subconscious mind and from there we get a lot of emotions and astral shit and things. You can see how the trends are running. You know, somebody says, I don't know, glory to Ukraine and we hate Russia. And even in Eurovision, they give the great prize to a stupid melody from Ukraine just because it's from Ukraine. You know? It's just a wave of sympathy, a wave of emotions, which people that have apparently nothing to do with it, how did the judges from a music contest, or the, how did they get influenced by a war which was happening 2,000 kilometers away from their door, from their house? No, that's the astral world, because in the astral world, now, since the pandemic and since this uh, war in Ukraine and with so many other things, there are so many astral influences which knock on the aura of each and every one of us because we are part of it. We are in a pool of the astral energies of billions of humans and animals who live on this planet. And we interact with them. If you live like Milarepa for 30 years in a cave and you don't see anybody, that's a different story because then you will forget and then you will stay away through a sort of no resonance. You will simply not resonate with the world. At the time of Milarepa, the world could have been going not in the Third World War, in the Fourth World War, and still Milarepa wouldn't have found out that the world had disappeared, that people had nuked each other's out or extended. No, because he was living, he didn't care. He didn't interact with the world except in a very symbolic and mental way. And thus, we interact astrally, especially those of us who share emotions with the world and who rub shoulders with the world, those of us who live in the world, 
we have to take care of our astral bodies. And then at the level of the mind, we have trends and megatrends, and people think in certain ways. And you wonder, how could people think so differently a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago? If you would go in Japan in the 16th century, you would be like thrown on another planet, which would probably feel frightening for you and unacceptable. No, How could people be so different just a few thousand kilometers and 400 years away from now? This is already the mental body. It's a totally different... No, how did the Mayans or the Incas rip people's hearts from their chest and give them to the sun god so that the sun will not destroy the world? You know, it's like... And they did that with tens of thousands of human hearts per year? Like, are you kidding me? No, it's like, what sort of mind do you have to have? What, what is your daily work? What do you do when you go to make caca in the toilet? Or behind your house, wherever you're making it, you know? Like, everything has to be upside down. Everything has to be totaliter aliter, you know? Everything has to be like, what kind of worlds are those? Therefore, at the level of the mind, the things are so powerful that we are even overwhelmed without knowing of the we are part of a stream. How were the yogis thinking at the time of the Mahabharata? How were the yogis thinking at the time of Patanjali? How were the yogis thinking at the time of Shankara or later at the time of Abhinavagupta. No, even there we can see major changes in the way it was distributed. So, we are merging. There are etheric entities. We mingle with them or we don't mingle with them depending of how careful we are. There are astral entities. It's very difficult to avoid mingling with them. And you have to keep a very clear mental hygiene, a very clear emotional hygiene, or to go and live in strict isolation to be able to avoid those. Now, people said, uh, maybe I can get in touch with the Dakini. No, sure, if you live like the Tibetans, yes, for the Tibetans, but they were alone most of the time. They lived in the middle of nature. They had a certain kind of diet. And the list could continue. They didn't have a sexual life. Most of these Tibetan yogis or monks. And thus, even the fact that there exist astral entities is very difficult to avoid. That's why the astral entities have been used a lot in shamanism, in animism, in the roots of religion, at the roots of the human religion, most of the shamanic and animic things is contact with astral entities. The shamanisms which have purported to go really high, they sometimes manage to reach mental spirits, spirits from the mental world, such as, for example, the totems, the totemic spirits, like the great buffalo, the great eagle, the great bear, the great jaguar, or something, to reach high spirits, collective spirits of the animals, 
which have already a certain level of abstractness. They are not just astral. They are a little bit in the mental because they are very powerful spirits that rule over millions and millions of members of that species, like all the bears on the earth or all the eagles on the earth or all those. And the shamans developed a magic, a way of interacting with these spirits of nature, spirits of the forest, spirits of the trees, spirits of the animals, spirits of uh, rain and phenomena, as well as totemic spirits. And this is the first level of religion. And then we go to the level of the mysteries, like the Greek mysteries. A little bit of the things meant in some Taoistic environments and a little bit of the things which are present in the Shinto religion of Japan. Things which go to the deities. Like the Greeks considered that most of the nations around them were barbarians. The word barbarian is a stupid word in Greek because it comes from the fact that some of those Middle Eastern languages, when they heard to them, they sounded like barbar, 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 and that's why they were called barbars. Barbars, which means people who didn't speak a civilized language like Greek, and they were speaking some guttural Middle Eastern languages. And those people, the Greeks considered themselves superior because they were not worshipping nymphs and dryads and mermaids and uh, satyrs. And that was the old animic religion. But they had gone out of the worship of spirits of nature to the devas. The devas were the deities. And the devas were already related to planets. And according to the definitions of Devachan in India, Devachan is a spiritual reality which is placed a little bit in the mental plane and also a little bit in the causal plane. Like there are lower deities, demigods, which are even mental realities like the Gandharvas and even some of the Dakinis. And there are then devas, which represent planetary spheres of consciousness, like the god of Jupiter, the god of Mars, the god of the moon, or the goddess of the moon, and all those. In India, it's a god of the moon, Chandra, and he has the female counterpart. And those deities are higher. If you worship deities, it's not shamanism or animism. It's the Egyptian religion, it's the hermetic tradition, it is the mystery, the great mysteries and the small mysteries of Greece, it is the Vedic tradition of India, it is the Scandinavian and Germanic mysticism where you are already talking to gods. The gods are more moody, more difficult to catch, they don't answer so easily like in shamanism or animism, but they can reach further. Like, for example, Jupiter, Zeus, can bless you to have a good life. And all your life you will be lucky, you will have prosperity, you will be of a good temperament, like merry, uh, joyful, a joyous temperament. 
And it's all a blessing from Jupiter. And many, 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 many other things, some of them being purely causal. So when we go to the causal universe, we start finding those deities which have a great power. Even these deities are far from being perfect. When you read the myths of India or the myths of Greece, you find out that Jupiter, Zeus, makes childish mistakes, behaves very badly sometimes. They are sometimes having a lot of ego, like those stories with Indra, who is very arrogant and egocentric. And uh, the list is really long. And even these gods cannot control everything. And they have arch enemies. There are some entities practically as powerful as the gods, or 90% as powerful as the gods. And those entities are called the Titans, or in India they are called Asuras. And these Asuras are challenging the gods, fighting with them, causing trouble, and they have almost equal power. Like the gods cannot get rid of them. There is no way for the gods to eliminate them and to permanently get rid of them. And basically the gods are not even always nice to human beings. The devas are presented as the devas of light. But actually we get to hear very mysterious things. Such as for example the gods are jealous on the human beings. Because some human beings can go the way of Buddha. And then they reach way beyond the gods. Way above the gods. And then the gods say, how? We are sitting here on our holy asses and we are stagnant. And these little bastards in their ignorance, from time to time there is a lucky one or a blessed one. And that one is spinning us around their finger if they want. Us, the gods. So it's like, it's how... And they did not sympathize human beings. They kept human beings like in a semi-slavery. And for example... Anthropologists tell us that one of the big mutations in this yuga, at least in the history which we know in the last 10,000 years or so, for the human beings, was when the human beings learned to produce fire, learned to use fire, including the fact that they used fire for cooking the food, and the biochemistry of the food changed, and in our food there appeared some substances which never exist for the people who eat just raw food, and those substances actually helped in developing certain parts of our brain. That's why anthropologists think that this theory that you should eat only raw food, it's maybe good for healing cancer for six months or something, but it's not good in the long run for your evolution. And the Chinese medicine and others wouldn't even dream about feeding people just raw food on the contrary. And coming back to our story, who brought the fire to human beings? Not a god, not Jupiter, not Mars, not Venus, not Selene or others. The fire was brought to the human beings by Prometheus. And Prometheus was a titan, which means a demon gave the fire to the humans. An asura gave the fire to the humans 
that's of course metaphysical. You can expect that an asura materialized physically and taught some baboon how to do the fire, or that it is simply a telepathic inspiration. It's just an injection of an idea in the mind of somebody who suddenly said, why don't I do like that? And then they discovered the wheel. They discovered the fire in this case, or how to produce it again and again. And thus, and how to use it, of course. And thus, it's interesting. The gods, the devas, wanted to keep the human beings without the fire. And the asuras, to just complicate their lives, gave the fire as a teasing, as to tease the gods. No? So these devas are high. They can do a lot of things. They can partly, not totally, because if they could totally, they would have made sure that nobody can come to the human beings and give them the fire. But they were incapable to predict it or to prevent it. So they don't control completely the causal world, just a little bit of the causal world. They can give blessings. They can modify your destiny. They can give levels of knowledge. As long as you are dependent on the astral world, they can bless you in the astral world and give you things in the astral world. And that's why for most of the Greek people, Roman people, Vedic people, it seemed like it's enough. That's enough. Well, for the human spirit, it is not enough. And as the human spirit was recovering some of the original things from the pure spirit, then, of course, humans have looked above. In India, it went gradually, because people looked not only to the deities, they looked to the great deities, to the Maha-Devas, to the Mahakarana, to the great causal world, levels five on our planes, and level six, where are gods which are much bigger. And this is where we find a lot of the deities of India. And from there, the Hindu revelation reached to the fact that you, as you go closer and closer, it becomes like a pyramid, and therefore you can see that the paradigm is at the top, and just below the top, they stopped at the level of the Trimurti, that one is not possible to understand, but it would be possible to understand three, and later the Tantric tradition said, why not two? Like Shiva and Shakti, plus and minus. But in the old Vedic tradition, they stopped at Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, the Trimurti, which are at the high end. They are the last borderline before we talk about the one. But for example, in the Jewish tradition, they, go, they went suddenly. Some of the Jewish prophets of the old days, they were living in this world of the Phoenicians, of the other nations from the Near East and Middle East, combined with the Egyptian mysticism, which was a mysticism of Isis and Osiris and Anubis and Nuit and all sorts of other deities. 
And the same things was for the Babylonians and for the, again I said, Phoenicians and other nations in, that, in those parts of the world who are still worshipping deities, higher or lower, not as high as the Trimurti, so the middle level ones, some of them even lower in shamanism, in animism. And then the, some brilliant prophets from the Jewish tradition, they went directly, like Abraham and others, they went directly to monotheism. They even skipped the Trimurti. And there was like when Abraham talked to the angels of God, which were the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It was the Ein Sofaur, or whatever you pronounce it in Hebrew, the infinite light. Those three angels were the trinitary nature of God. When Abraham spoke, he received the visit of those three angels. And then two of them, if you remember your Bible, went to Sodom and Gomorrah and all that. And therefore there was a concept somewhere in the Jewish mysticism that there are some capital aspects, some cardinal aspects of God. But they didn't stop. They went directly to the one. Why not notice that on top of everything, even that three murti, they must be aggregated together somehow. And the three murti from India, in the end it must be one single thing. That was a huge revolution. Your mind must be blessed and super blessed to see that. Try to think that Vedic rishis and seers and others, they had not seen it in their lifetime. Maybe they realized it after death in the astral body or in the subtle planes, but they had not seen it. They were unable to write about it. Socrates and Pythagoras, they were not seeing it. They lived in a world in which spirituality was the big mysteries and the smaller mysteries. It was a world of the gods, Egyptian, Greek, Middle Eastern. It, there was a whole plethora of them. And that's why when we jumped to monotheism, that was a revolution at the level of the mental body and a revolution at the level of the causal body to be able to conceive not only of gods, which are higher than the normal gods, like Jupiter and Mars, are small babies compared to Brahma, Vishnu, or to other, even to the forms of Shakti, Kali, Tara, and all those, because those are placed at a much higher level of the universe. But then, even higher than that, there is God as oneness. And then, of course, India somehow caught on to that and developed it beautifully in the two extremes. A God which does not talk to you because he is void and he is called Shunya, Shunyata, Nirvana, Nirvikalpa, Samadhi, Brahman, Purusha. Or, like the Tantric tradition managed, a God which is alive because it's connected still with manifested forms of Shakti, and that God is the God of Tantra, 
in the beginning Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva with their consorts, and in the monistic Tantra, then it became Bhairava together with his Bhairavi or Adi Shakti, which has her ten forms. And therefore, in the tantric environment, it's the most evolved because there you accept the one, you accept there is a part of the one which is transcendental and silent, absolute. You accept that this transcendental part is interacting, is interfacing with the manifestation. It's alive and therefore it has the Holy Spirit, it has the Holy Ghost, it has the breath of God or the Shakti and therefore it acts with the world and therefore together with those there exists a whole hierarchy of like then it's possible to understand the existence of Skanda Kartikeya of Ganesha, Ganapati, Vinayaka or whatever was his original name. There you can understand that there are ten forms of Shakti, that each one of them can be associated with a male counterpart, that occasionally Tantric gurus may quote of the existence of other deities, like even in Kashmiri Shaivism, they accept, they quote, that they are not very interested in them, but they quote that in this universe there are yakshakas and rakshakas and the dakinis and other entities and that the yogis sometimes interact, can sometimes interact with them. And thus, there is the whole pyramid. There we have the etheric things, the spirits of nature, the higher spirits of nature, the demigods and god, the demigoddesses, the gods, the devas, together with their friends, the asuras, and above them, the great gods from the Mahakarana, from the levels number five and six, who are truly controlling the destiny and the timelines and every force in the universe, going up to the Trimurti, going up to the division of the universe of Shiva and Shakti, and eventually admitting that everything is just Anuttara Paramashiva or Anuttara Paramashakti. It doesn't even matter anymore, which represents the Absolute and the One. That's why those of you who come in contact with the Tantric school, I wanted to make you see tonight that this is not at all a simple story. There is a whole metaphysics. There are diagrams. The Hindu Vedic science mentions seven lokas and seven infernal lokas below the water line. That there are so many things happening in the planes of the universe and that the human being fortunately has access to all of them. All these things are open for you as an experiment. And please, from the very beginning, those of you who feel awkward, do not interpret the universe as a beehive full of bees, full of life forms. Think first of all about the planes of the universe and the energies. You are in resonance with certain energies, with the tattvas, with the elements, 
with you. It's a matter of resonance. You are having a resonance with different planes of the universe. In that way, you don't have to get afraid by the fact that great mystics, being in touch with those forms of the universe, they have realized that consciousness or personality, consciousness being a word which is extremely difficult to define, what exactly is consciousness? I will not try tonight to go there. Come into the Kashmiri Shaivism workshop and there we talk about the nature of consciousness. And thus, that consciousness can identify with everything. I can meditate with Kali, with time, until I feel I have become time. Exactly as Tibetan yogis, to develop their capacity of Samyama, they meditated with a cow, with a yak, with a Tibetan type of cow, they meditated, or ox, with a Tibetan yak, until they felt physically like a yak, like they had grown horns. Of course, they didn't have real horns, but they were in a state of trance, where they were like self-hypnotized, and it felt like that. And therefore, if I can become time, it means time is someone, not something. Because otherwise there will be a barrier. Time is a thing, and I am a being. But if I can become time, it means time is a person. And then it becomes acceptable to look for what person? Which is that person? What could we say about that person? And then even more, how can we get in touch with that person? For example, Albert Einstein meditated for 7, 8, 9, 10, I forgot, 11 years with time before he got the vision of relativity, of the relationship between space and time. But Albert Einstein did not go to the bottom of it. What he did was a child's game compared to what Ramakrishna did. That's why when Ramakrishna reached Kali, he got not only consistently altered states of consciousness, you can say that the theory of relativity of Albert Einstein is coming from an altered state of consciousness or is an altered state of consciousness, but... In the case of Ramakrishna, he got clairvoyance, he got siddhis, he started touching people and healing them of different terrible diseases, like he healed lepers and other things, you know, which was considered impossible. Like he performed small miracles when he was there, when he was... So Ramakrishna, if... if Albert Einstein would have meditated with time for another three years maybe that door would have been opened for him and Albert Einstein would have become a prophet, a saint, a magician, a something. No? And that's why uh, there are different degrees of doing this. The science of the mantras, the science of the yantras, the science of worship and puja, the science of magic and offerings, which are developed in Tantra and in the Hindu tradition, they are amazing breakthroughs 
of how the human beings can collaborate a little bit with these invisible levels of the universe. And there are Babas in India who would do a fire ceremony in which they will call a Buddha, the Buddhas being etheric entities, not even astral, like real, low, ghostly like entities. And there are fire ceremonies which can be done for Kali, for Tara, for Bhairava, for Lord Vishnu, for others and others. And thus, I'm telling you all these things to understand that those of you who come in touch with Agama and with the Tantric world, you don't have to get afraid of it as I would have gotten 40 years ago or more when I first encountered these things. Uh, you have to take it gradually and enlarge your understanding in a rational, mathematical, scientific way, understanding everything through the prism of energies and the resonance and transfer of energy and focusing of energy and the five actions of energy and all those things because those are the things which fit to any mentality. And I can only promise that when you practice those for a while, and when you start having experiences of the chakras, of the invisible planes of the universe, when you start feeling various energies cursing through your body and resonating with the sun and the moon and other things from the universe, then, by doing sun salutations and timidly trying to understand that even the sun is a person and not just a celestial body, then, slowly, slowly, you will become open towards this tantric tradition, this tantric tradition being a wonderful merging of the rationalism with the shamanic traditions of India and Tibet. There is a lot of shamanism into it, but there is no need to be afraid of it. The amazing thing is that this shamanism of Tibetan Tantric Yoga and of Indian Tantric Yoga is a shamanism which goes all the way to Abhinava Gupta and all the way to Kashmiri Shaivism and all the way to the cosmic consciousness of Bhairava or God. And thus, uh, it's a wonderful adaptation there of the shamanic tradition because otherwise in Agama, we are not practicing, let's say, normal shamanism, common shamanism, only the divine brands of it, which are part of this. That's why I hope that a lecture like this will at least encourage you to ask questions, to search for tutoring, to go into personal contact and not to get spooked by the world of Tantra, Indian or Tibetan, because this world of Tantra is highly symbolic, it is metaphysical, it has meanings, and it can be approached completely rationally and scientifically, just searching for the resonance, for the effects. No, like if you want to say, I do something with the energy of fire, will it produce heat in my body? 
will it subjectively produce heat in my astral body, etc. Yes, it will. And those are things which you can experience quite easily. You do 10 Udiana Bandhas and 10 Nauli Kriyas and you see if there is any fire coming to you. Everybody knows these things. These are things which you experience after a month of yoga. After two months of yoga, you already have some uh, concept about these things. That's why uh, maybe some people dropping directly in a Shakti festival, they are considering this cultish. But I, for one, have never had the intention of transforming things in a cultish way because my understanding of the tradition as a young man when I got initiated into these things was gradual, step by step, using intelligence, using reason, using experiment, using analogies with parapsychology and physics and other natural sciences. And that's why uh, I think that these things can be integrated very beautifully without anybody having the fear that they are just dropping irrationally in some exclusive right brain hemisphere, intuitive, irrational, cultish religion, which is weird and contains sexual yoga on top of everything else, uh, you know, and which makes it even more like, uh, what? So, this being said, this was what I felt like answering to this question tonight of uh, giving you an explanation of the different classes of spirits which exist on the different planes of the universe and assuring you that these are part of the universal life and that some of these you will never encounter, some of them are not important, some of them are not relevant, and some forms of consciousness in this universe are simply inevitable because we live in them, we are based in these realities. The ten Mahavidyas are dancing in every cell of your body, we all are put together by the ten fundamental energies of the universe. And therefore, some of these things you will be able to see inside you. And if you feel that you can use them, that you wish to use them, understand them, to climb on them like on a ladder to heaven, then that is what this shamanic tantric yoga is. It's a method for your evolution for your understanding. I think it is enough for tonight. Thank you all for joining. I hope that especially those of you who didn't have a great experience with the deity yoga, as the Tibetans call it, can approach it in a more relaxed way. I hope that people who want to come to Agama, they will listen one day to this uh, satsang on the net and they will get a bit more openness to what's happening in this universe. And for the rest, everything is the tradition, the teachings, and your personal experience. Once more, thank you all for joining. See you in the future activities here in Agama Yoga.